You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, good morning and happy Palm Sunday to you. We're glad that you're here today. Think about this for just a second. Pick one person you most admire. One person. That might be your mom, your dad, your grandparents. Could be Abraham Lincoln, George Washington. Could be Martin Luther King Jr. But no one person gets an every Sunday worship service. And yet hundreds of millions of people will gather today to celebrate Palm Sunday where the people shouted Hosanna as Christ went into Jerusalem. That's how important Christ is. Keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, if you will. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to put the scriptures right here and kind of keep track of that. But let me just share with you tonight how this matters. I really want our teenagers to pay attention today. Dr. Daniel B. Wallace is a professor of uh, Dallas Theological, but here's why he's so important. There's few people in America today that is as good at Greek and good at the manuscripts and all the things that go into making your New Testament. In fact, you would know him because he's debated Bart Ehrman. He has uh, helped edit the net translation. There's all kinds of questions we receive as believers, or perhaps you're a skeptic here today, and I want to invite you back this evening. The questions that we'll be looking at tonight are the follows. Uh, how do we know that our New Testament hasn't been corrupted? How do we know that what we have now isn't what or is it what they had then? What about the modern versions where they'll skip a verse? In the King James, it'll have all the verses, and these modern versions are missing every so often. What's the deal with that? So all these pieces tonight are really important. And so tonight, we invite you to be at Cross Church, our second campus. Some of you longtime NRH people, you said you haven't been out there yet. What was the old comedian say, here's your sign? Yeah, here's your chance. Come join us tonight. Every teenager, I'd love for you to be there tonight. Uh, if the cost, which all the money goes to, to Cornerstone, that's the dental clinic you saw a minute ago, if that's an issue for you, just come and tell them, Pastor Scott's paying my way, all right? And you'll see Tracy in a few minutes and see if, see if she'll let me do that, all right? <laughs> so that's tonight. It's going to be a great night. Hey, next Sunday is what? Easter. No, I can't get anything by you guys. Some of you will be worshiping at home. Others will be worshiping together with us here in person. Whichever way you're worshiping, this is a great opportunity to invite others so that they would know Christ. And listen, if you're inviting someone, you, you're not guaranteeing they'll come. You're just saying, this is who I'd like to come next Sunday. We would like to drop them off a gift. And if you want us to do that, would you go by the ministry gallery right after this service and give us their name? We're going to be starting on that tomorrow. Just be an honor. We're not going to certainly embarrass you or embarrass anyone else. We're just going to stop by at their door with a gift and, and not even go inside, but just be our honor to do that. Ephesians chapter 2. Look with me at this message because it really can make a difference in your life. For some of you who know Christ, this is brand new news. For some of you who know, who, I should say who don't know Christ, brand new news. Some of you who do know Christ, this is a reminder. It's so important. It can change your perspective. Maybe you think that only the most successful people are blessed, that the best are blessed, and nothing can be further from the truth. Look with me at verse four and five, specifically verse five, where the Bible tells us we're united with Christ. And again, our passage, passages are up here. 
The Bible says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The Bible speaks here that this is Easter language. A week ahead of Easter is telling us that Easter is happening to a believer. As we're going to see in the moments to come, we're made alive, we're raised, and we're seated with Christ. If I were to say to you, the next room over would be Jairus' daughter. You remember Jairus in the Gospels? He was a synagogue ruler, sort of the leader of a synagogue, and his daughter was dead, and the Roman people came, and they said, and Jesus raised this little girl to life. There are so many almost funerals in the Bible, almost funerals, not funerals, almost funerals. Or take the widow of Zarephath. Elijah came by, raised that person back to faith in Christ. It doesn't stop there. There's so many resurrections in our Bible. Take, for example, uh, Tabitha, whom Peter prayed for in the book of Acts. She came back to life. Or in the little town of Nain, N-A-I-N, northern Galilee, still there today. You can go see it. There was a widow's son, almost funeral. person was dead. The son, Christ raised her, raised him back to life. Now, if I said to you, if you were taking your kids to school, the next room over, those four people were in there, those dead people who came back to life, would that interest you to talk with them? Would you delay your day? Would you call your boss and say, hey, I may not come in till lunch because we've got four dead people and they're all back together. There's a little conference going on. I'd turn the TV down if they came on the, you know, if they came in my house or I'd tell my kids, shh, I want to hear these four. The Bible says that right next to you along the pew is one person, could be a man, could be a woman, who was spiritually dead and is made alive. That's what the Bible's saying. There was a dead man walking next to you. There was a dead woman spiritually walking next to you. The Bible says that when you become a believer, you were dead and made alive. In fact, what if I asked you that question, what is a Christian? Some of you would say a Christian is a flag-waving patriot. It's a, some of you might say, well, they're a pretty good person. They pray more. They, they go to church. We try to follow Jesus. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. The Bible says that a believer is someone who was dead and has been made alive. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Once you see there's three, three verbs here, and I want you to see what's behind them. The Bible says made us alive together, verse 5. And then, verse 6, I believe, raised us up with him, third, and seated us with him. There's three verbs in verse 5 and 6, all three of which are right here. Again, first verb, made us alive. Second verb, raised us up. Third, seated us with him. Each of these three verbs, if you die were to see this in the original language of Greek, have a little prefix, S-Y-N, in front of it. Sin, only with a Y. It's the synonym or syntax or synonymous. Each of those words are compound words. And you can see it's coming through in the English. We were, again, it's together, made alive together with Christ. They add the prefix sin to the word alive in Greek. Here it's put down the little sin, together, raised with. Compound word, we were raised with Christ. Now we're seated with Christ. What is a Christian? 
The Bible says a Christian is one who participates spiritually in what Christ went through physically at Easter. All through the Bible it teaches that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've died with him. You've been made alive in him. You have been raised with him, and now you are even seated with him. The language behind verses 5 and 6 is the language of Easter. It's a language specifically teaching us that Christ died physically. He was made alive. On Easter Sunday, he was risen. And afterwards, this language right here, he was seated at the right hand of God the Father. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not that you pray a little bit more. You go to church every so often. You know not to cuss. It's this has happened. You were dead spiritually, and you've been made alive. Again, what is a believer? Next to you is a spiritual rotting corpse, or it used to be. And that's a dead man walking. It's a dead woman walking. It's someone who's been made alive in Christ. This is the power of what it looks like to become a believer in the Lord Jesus. It says have a life inside of you that's moving and shaping us. You were dead. You were doomed. And the Bible says you were held captive. But Christ entered into your life. And again, you experience spiritually what Christ experienced physically. Let me just take one piece of takeaway here before we go back into this. It's not the Bible saying that Jesus wasn't really raised. Don't walk away from this message saying, oh, Easter must have been Christ was spiritually raised, or he was figuratively raised, or he was metaphorically raised. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, had you walked in on Friday to the grave of Jesus and taken like a medical professional would have, his or her fingers on the pulse of Jesus, there'd been no pulse. He's dead. You would have watched his chest. There's no in and out. You could have put a mirror in front of his lips. There's no breath coming. And then somewhere between Friday and Sunday, the Bible says he was made to live. And he was raised to walk. All that happened to him physically, so this could be happening to you spiritually. Now, why, why would I need that? Let's go back in the Bible for just a second. Let's keep tracking here. Look at verse 5 again where the Bible says, you were dead in your trespasses. I was dead in my trespasses. A lot of you in the room are believers. I wonder, do you feel that miracle? Do you feel the miracle of being made alive in Christ? Do you feel perhaps the, the boringness of a humdrum life, or you feel the ups and downs, perhaps the depression of news that doesn't come the way you want it or news around the world, or maybe you felt the hope of having a stimulus check. But do you feel the hope instead of being made alive in Christ? And the Bible wants you to feel it. In fact, to communicate this perhaps accurately, what's happening here is that you're not dead physically prior to Christ, but you are dead spiritually. So if I had a spiritual EKG, you know what EKG is, right? That little thing that's moving up and down, showing my heartbeat. Until you meet Christ, the Bible's saying, if I could plug that into you, you've got no spiritual pulse. You have no spiritual life. You're not moving it. You're flatlining it. In fact, 
You can understand what the Bible's saying here in verse 5 if you think of this. Imagine in my right hand if I have a big syringe with a big needle, and it's filled with penicillin. And over here I have my, you know, my, my Excedrin or my Tylenol, my Motrin, whatever it is. And I go and I find the nearest cadaver. And I open up that casket. Let's say I don't get arrested for doing this. And I roll up that man's sleeve, I roll up that woman's sleeve, and I inject penicillin in it. We see anything so far? Or if I take that Excedrin and that Tylenol, that Motrin, and I make their mouth to move. And again, desecrate, not going to do all that, but you get the point. The Bible's saying that you have no spiritual life outside of Christ, if yet he's yet to move you. That means reading the Bible for even one minute feels like an eternity. Anything about pursuing Christ is just incredibly boring. You find all this just dreadful. That's what it means to have no spiritual life. You're flatlining the spiritual EKG. You could liken it this way, of a relationship where a boyfriend and girlfriend, there's no flame, there's no romance, it's, it's burned out. You have no response to him. She has no response to you. What's the, what was it said about 10 years ago or so? She's not that into you. That's what I'm saying on the before picture, before you meet Jesus. You're just not that into him. It's not as if you don't have freedom. He's presenting himself. You just don't want him. You don't want anything to do with him. You have no life. The Bible says you were dead in our trespasses. This is the before picture. Now, for some of you today, this is the present picture because you don't know Christ. You may have been wet in baptism. You may have gone through some confirmation. Some guy like me might have moved his hands over you, or maybe you're in a Bible school someplace. All those are good things. Does not mean that you know Christ. This is a revolutionary, powerful thing. Now, I want you to get a distinction here. The Bible says God is dead to you, but the Bible does not say you are dead to God. And that's a big distinction. The Bible says that God is dead to you, but nowhere does it say that God thinks that you're dead to him. Let me show you why. Look at verse 4. A little bit ahead of what we read a moment ago. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Do you see the word love twice there? The author of Ephesians purposefully inserted the word love twice. Now, if you and I were in school, we weren't weren't allowed to use the same word twice in a sentence, were we? We'd have to right-click on our Microsoft Word processor and find a synonym for that. But God, whom we believe wrote verse 4, felt so compelled to communicate this love that he uses, look at this, love as a noun and then love as a verb. That's how much he loves you. Love is a noun, and that's not enough. That's not sufficient to communicate. He then uses love as a verb. In fact, even as a noun, what's that word right there? Yeah. He's even got to put an adjective next to it. The Bible's telling you that you're dead to God, but God's not dead to you. I said that wrong. I want to see if you're paying attention. Not really. 
God's dead to you, but you're not dead to him. Think about this with me. What if God were a mafia guy? If God were a mafia guy, can you see from some of your mafia movies that you've watched that you should have been reading the Bible and not watching that crazy stuff? And you can see the guy say, he's dead to me. She's dead to me. You've got no respect. You've paid me no allegiance. You didn't kiss the ring. It's dead to me. And then we learn it in that great mafia movie back when I was a kid, Sleep with the Fishes, right? Sleep with the Fishes? I'm taking you out. God every, had every right to do that, by the way. He had every right. You've shown him no allegiance. You've shown him no loyalty. You've shown him no love, no worship. You've maligned. If God were a mafia guy, he would have said, you've shown no real respect. Why should I love you when you treat me like this? Matter of fact, you don't have to be a mafia person to do this. You and I, average people that don't kill people for a living, we will act like this. As a pastor, and of course, right, we're the, we're the best of the best, right? We're the saints. We, we're paid to love people even when we don't love you, right? So, you know, we'll call you, we'll text you, we'll go by your house, and we get nothing. And after a while, whoever's listening next to me, I say, that's it. I've had it with them. I ain't going to respond to none of the stuff I'm sending out. I'm better than that. Look at this. He's got every right to do that. Even though you say, God, you're dead to me. The Bible says he still comes after you. He never, he'll never say until the last moment. Even Judas, this week, Palm Sunday to Easter, Good Friday, Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek. You read about it this week. You look at it. Even with Judas. And he knew Judas was going to do his thing. He, he said, one of the 12 is going to do this. He knew exactly what was going to take place. You'll find it. He's pleading with Judas. He's pleading with him. He's warning. He's telling him, you don't have to do this. The Bible says God loves you so greatly. Look here, let me, let me show you some of the power of God's love. Let me show you what some of the things he does. Look at verse 7 with me. It's the third of those three verbs that begin with a little S-Y-N. It's this word. Here it is, seated. He seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's our little S-Y-N, sin, with him. We're seated with him. What does that mean, to be seated? Well, again, it goes back to the Easter weekend. Christ was made alive. Christ was raised from the dead. And then shortly thereafter, he is ascended. He is ascended to the Father. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1. Over in Ephesians 1, it describes about this ascending. It's like he takes the elevator. He just goes straight up. And the Bible says all the disciples are watching him. And the angel shows up and says, what are you guys doing? Why are you looking up here? He's going to come back one day. Now get going. Get busy, is what he says. Get, get to praying. And the Bible says Christ was then seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's, the Bible says he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's seated. And look at this. Look at this. It doesn't say, I am present tense, S-E-A-T. It's past tense. Past tense. I'm presently seated with Christ. What does that mean? It means several things. I know it's not football season, but since we're in Texas, it really isn't always football season in Texas. 
Immediately, what does the quarterback do when he leaves the field to play? The quarterback immediately will do one of several things. Today, they're grabbing these iPads and they're looking at that, but they'll put headphones on. Or back when I was young, they'd get the bat phone out, right? They'd get that, that red phone that, I don't know what it They're talking to the guy upstairs, the offensive coordinator. They, they can talk to the head coach. The head coach is maybe a few feet away. But almost every time the quarterback comes out, they're talking to someone above. Why is that? Well, it's the same, it's the same thing that happens when you go to an athletic event and you get the cheap seats, right? The seats that we can afford. If you watch a sport long enough, I remember the first times I got to go see my beloved Kentucky Wildcats play in the RCA Dome in Indianapolis. It was the cheap seats. It, it, if I had a telescope, I could barely see the people up there, 70, 70, 80,000 people. And I could see all the defenses. I could see all the offenses. I could see what they're running. I could see what my coach was trying to teach us and how to run these type things. You see it differently from the air, don't you? There's just something about being in an elevated position. Look at this. You are seated alongside Christ in heavenly places. The Bible says Christ is praying for you. But down here on earth, if you only get a horizontal perspective, you've got Satan trying to convince you he doesn't really love you. Satan's trying to trip you up saying, ah, you're not seated. That's, that's crazy talk. Instead, Satan is whipping you up in life, moving you into addiction, moving you into times where you say, I cannot save this marriage. I can't put up another week with this guy. I can't put up another week with this gal. That you're worth nothing. You'll never find anyone that you are given to a lifetime of anger. You can't defeat depression. You can't defeat pornography. The Bible says instead, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're seated past tense. What, is, what does that mean? Well, can you imagine if God has Scott seated in heaven, that he looks at me and he says, hey, come here, Maze. Come here, Coach says, come here. I didn't like your performance this past week. And we're going to take your seat away. We're going to bench you. That didn't happen. God didn't come along and say, those people that make you angry, uh, you know, you're a professional Christian. You knew not to cuss out loud, but you cussed inside your head, right? We're taking you out. Your seat's gone. This isn't the Oscars. This isn't some high school basketball game. You're... If you're in Christ, you're presently seated. You have a reservation that's not going to be taken away. It's an amazing thing. In fact, I love this next piece. Look at verse 5 and verse 7. I'm pulling the glasses because I want you to see this. In verse 5 and verse 7, I've skipped verse 6 here because I want you to see this. Look at this. By grace you have been saved. Look at this in verse 7. To show the immeasurable riches of his grace. So the Bible communicates that my salvation is not up to my performance. It's not up to how I do. I don't earn. I don't get a reward. I don't get a sticker for my good work. In fact, by grace, I'm seated alongside Christ, so I have all the advantages of that. Can you imagine the pressure and the performance of knowing that how I act this week 
could determine if I'm in hell or heaven. You talk about pressure. Yeah, Tom Brady's under pressure. You're under pressure tomorrow as you go to work. Teachers are under pressure. You talk about real pressure that God expects that if I order my life just right, if I'm free of addictions and all this kind of stuff, the Bible says God's grace, you have been saved by grace, by grace you've been saved. So God came and he found you. And it, dis, it wasn't because you're savable. He didn't look and say, well, I'm looking at some good church people here. If I do a little bit in old Scott's life, I can see some good actions coming out of him. I think we'll go down and get him. He's a savable person. When I came to church circa 1992, I saw a young lady in the choir of a church in Evansville, Indiana. I said, now she is lovable. I found somebody who's beautiful to pursue. God does not do that with you. He does not pick you because you're a good person. By grace, you have been saved. God does not, listen carefully, he doesn't love us because we're valuable. It's because he loves us that we are valuable. It's not that you're good-looking with morality. The Bible says here you're not earning your way. All you have to do is respond. You know, this word grace for a church like ours, when a pastor communicates that or other people, it becomes, becomes so trite. So do you, do you know any Mormons? Do you know any Latter-day Saints? I went looking this week because I wanted to communicate this accurately, and I'm going to show you in just a minute what our Latter-day Saint friends speak of when they think of grace. I'm not doing this to pick on anyone. I realize that we live in the day and age where supposedly all religions lead to the same God. Now think about that for just a second. All religions supposedly lead to the same God. If I said to you, all Asian people look alike, all white people look alike, all black people look alike, what would you think? It's a racist statement, isn't it? You wouldn't, you would, that's exactly when you say all religions are the same. In other words, if I say all Asians look the same, I've not bothered to look at the difference between someone who's from Korea and someone who's from China. Because when you study it long enough, even my eye can pick that out. All religions don't lead to the same God. You're, you're being ugly to all of them. But not picking on anyone, but just with the Book of Mormon. Look at this here for just a second. This is, of the, this is what the Book of Mormon, this is what our Mormon friends believe, and it's going to begin at the start. For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ, all's good so far, and to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved. Now look at that last piece. After all that we can do, Maybe that's what you think grace is. You come so far and God will meet you. You know what the Bible's saying? All that you do and all that I do is worthless. It's by grace you're saved. It's by grace you're saved. God loves you so much. In fact, verse 4, back in Ephesians 5 now, Ephesians 2, the Bible says he is rich in mercy. 
That word rich is the same word for any wealthy person, any wealthy woman, any wealthy man. When I see that word rich and I think about grace or mercy or love, I think about a God whose bank vaults are full of grace. Just all his safety deposit boxes. When you go into the central deposit, the federal depository of God, instead of green money, he's got grace, he's got mercy, he's got love, and it's just teeming out. He's rich in it. It's rich in it. So much so that verse 7 says, look at this, so that in the coming ages, the purpose of everything, the purpose of why all things are jacked up in our world, why? To show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Now, I just want to close with a couple of thoughts here. If I were, a moment ago, I asked you to imagine a room full of dead people who were resurrected, how cool would it be to interview them? And I said, we're a room full of spiritually dead. Many of us spiritually dead made alive. Not all of us, but many of us. Now, imagine this. Imagine you get to pick one person, one person who will show you mercy. One person. Who would you pick? Well, there were days I'd picked a teacher, right? I think of Miss Lawhorn in second grade. Could have used some mercy and some grace out of Miss Lawhorn. If she were here, she'd say, I did show you a lot of grace, young man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Miss Lawhorn, we're fine. All right? You might pick, you might pick your, the person who holds your mortgage or holds your credit card. I would, love to, I would love some mercy and grace from them. You might pick your spouse. Shoot. Some of you pick your ex. Boy, I wish she'd show me some grace. I wish he'd show me some mercy. You could pick your kids. Yeah. Now, hold that thought. How long would their mercy or their grace be good for? If it's Miss Lawhorn, that was about one year. Professor, maybe four or five years. I mean, they don't have control of you forever. If you pick your parents, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a century. Let's say that they live over a hundred years and you're with them a century. Your your banker, shoot, longest note mortgage I know about is thirty years. That's thirty years of grace and mercy. I tell you who I'd pick. I'd pick God. Because even the best people are going to show me mercy or grace for a century. He's going to show it to me for eternity. My one person I want mercy from is God. Because when this century goes by, another century and another century. And it it just goes on and on. The purpose of all of life, the Bible says is so that we would see his grace, his kindness toward us, and we, in response, worship him. So today, do you know Christ? Well, pastor, I'm thinking about it. Can I just speak to you like I would one of my three kids whom I love greatly? We've got enough lollygagging. We've got enough foot dragging. It's time to quit thinking and get on with it, friend. What do you... What, what else do you need? Today is the day the Lord has said to you, come. One person said, how was it that you found the Lord? He said, well, it was like this. I spent decades running from him, 
And Christ caught up with me. He ran with me. He ran past me, and then he turned around and faced me, and I saw his kindness in his face. I love that. No wonder C.S. Lewis called him the great hound of heaven. Grace. Some of you today, God's been so gracious with you, and you're a believer. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. And COVID has pressed pause on everything in your year. Everything has been paused. All ministry, all this stuff. And now that we're pressing play again, it's time to resume. Let me ask you, believers, put your beautiful faces, your bright, shining faces right here. I know that this next week you're going to make money. I know that you're going to make good grades. I know that you're going to cook meals and take care of other people. I get all that. But what are you doing to advance the kingdom of God? This is not a cruise ship where you put money in that plate and you pay me to do it for you. Jesus died for you. I can't serve for you. It's time to use our time and redeem our time for the Lord. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.